Hello and welcome back to Let's Be Better, a podcast where we have the hard conversations about politics, minority communities, and our world at large. I'm Hannah and today is Saturday, September 26th of 2020. This week in review, we will be covering the passing of RBG and her vacant seat, Donald Trump talking about a peaceful transition, Florida's felon voting laws and Mike Bloomberg, and updates on the Breonna Taylor case. We also have the question of the week, which is how are Supreme Court officials chosen? Thank you for joining me. So this week I'm structuring things a bit differently. We're going to do the question of the week first, then talk about this week, because the biggest story is obviously the passing and replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I learned a lot about the appointment process, which I think would be beneficial in discussing her replacement. Also, I want to point out that there's a really, really good four-and-a-half-minute video created by Ted Ed about how Supreme Court justices become appointed, and it's really helpful. If I could, I would just play the entire video, but I can't, so instead I'll just highly recommend it to you. Also, a special shout-out to my friend Jennifer for suggesting this week's question. It could not be more poignant. So to start, the Constitution does not have a specific framework in place for what the Supreme Court justice appointment process should look like, which makes it tricky for us today. According to the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, which reads that the president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution allows both houses of Congress to create their own rules for proceedings, including the judicial confirmation process. And under the Senate's current standing rules, the nomination is sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee, unless the nominee is a current or former Senate member. Typically, nominees for Supreme Court justice are lawyers or judges from smaller courts. But when a spot opens up on the Supreme Court, a few things have to happen. From Ted Ed. If you want to become a justice on the Supreme Court, the highest federal court in the United States, three things have to happen. You have to be nominated by the President of the United States. Your nomination needs to be approved by the Senate. And finally, the President must formally appoint you to the court. Because the Constitution doesn't specify any qualifications, in other words, that there's no age, education, profession, or even native born citizenship requirement, a president can nominate any individual to serve. So far, six justices have been foreign-born, at least one never graduated from high school, and another was only 32 years old when he joined the bench. Most presidents nominate individuals who broadly share their ideological view, so a president with a liberal ideology will tend to appoint liberals to the court. Of course, a justice's leanings are not always so predictable. Many other factors come up for consideration as well, including experience, personal loyalties, ethnicity, and gender. Furthermore, a president will usually pick a moderate since the Senate needs to confirm the new justice. So if a Democratic president picks a super far-left nominee, they are more likely to be shot down by the Senate, whereas if they're more moderate, the Senate is more likely to settle on somebody who's in the middle. Also, it's worth noting that the Supreme Court is supposed to be nonpartisan and only loyal to truth and justice. So having a justice who would stick only to one side or the other is kind of counterintuitive. So after a president picks a nominee, they are then vetted by the Senate. This includes a public hearing, a committee vote, and a Senate floor vote. 
also from TED-Ed. The candidates are then thoroughly vetted, down to their tax records and payments to domestic help. Once the president interviews the candidate and makes a formal nomination announcement, the Senate leadership traditionally turns the nomination over to hearings by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Depending on the contentiousness of the choice, that can stretch over many days. Since the Nixon administration, these hearings have averaged 60 days. The nominee is interviewed about their law record, if applicable, and where they stand on key issues to discern how they might vote. And especially in more recent history, the committee tries to unearth any dark secrets or past indiscretions. The Judiciary Committee votes to send the nomination to the full Senate with a positive or negative recommendation, often reflective of political leanings, or no recommendation at all. Most rejections have happened when the Senate majority has been a different political party than the president. In order for a nominee to be confirmed, they must get a simple majority of 51 votes. If it's tied 50-50, then the vice president would break it. I do want to point out that currently there are 53 Republican senators, so if they all stick together, they can confirm whoever they want. However, two Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, say that they will not vote for a new Supreme Court justice during the remainder of Trump's current term. Whether this means that they'll abstain from voting or will vote no is still to be determined. So after the Senate approves the nominee, the president writes a written appointment, and then the appointee takes an oath to administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and the rich and faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon a U.S. Supreme Court justice. In the United States, Supreme Court justices usually serve for life unless they retire, resign, or impeached, though impeachment has never happened before. This is so that way once a justice is appointed, they don't have to worry about being re-elected or pleasing a particular party. Again, their loyalty would only remain with truth and justice. This is the same reason why justices don't run for their office, because it would incentivize them to pass rulings that benefited their donors, supporters, political parties, etc. In an article via Northeastern EDU, law professor Michael Meltzner, who specializes in the Supreme Court, points out that a lot has changed since the 18th century. When the Constitution was written, the life expectancy for white males, the only population allowed to hold a Supreme Court seat at the time, hovered just below 50 years. In 2016, the most recent data available by the World Bank, the average U.S. life expectancy was 79 years, nearly three decades longer. This fact alone might be enough to reconsider the justice's lifetime appointments. He also says... It's absolutely something that should be considered. There should be a healthy discussion in which the pros and cons are considered, and hopefully in a non-political way. Several technical problems would need to be solved in order to change the nature of the Supreme Court terms. Congress would need to find a way to stagger term limits so that one president doesn't get to dominate the court. It would also need to determine a structure for replacing justices who step down in the middle of their terms. The main policy consideration here is assuring that any new process doesn't damage judicial independence. So that's a summary of how and why Supreme Court justices get nominated the way they do. So now for a bit of opinion time. 
So I'm not really sure where I stand with term limits on Supreme Court justices. I understand why we don't have them, but I also understand how it might not be fair for president to get a ton of picks for the court if a bunch of people just happen to die while he or she is in office. But truthfully, I think term limits are fixing a symptom of a bigger disease, which is, you guessed it, the bipartisanism of America. If we stop being exclusively Democrat or Republican, then that would free up senators and justices to do things that align with their beliefs, not the beliefs of a party. I think we're seeing that now with the Republicans trying to rush a new nominee to replace RBG. If they say they won't vote for a replacement, then they're jeopardizing their career with the Republican Party. But if they do vote for a replacement, then they're hypocrites. Furthermore, as we discussed earlier, the Senate is split 53-47. So ultimately, whoever is in charge gets the say. And of course, who is in charge of the two sides? The Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It felt this way, too, with Donald Trump's impeachment. We can predict what the House and the Senate will vote based exclusively on what party that they align with. Big decisions like impeachment of a president or nominating a Supreme Court justice shouldn't be decided by party lines. But because we only allow two parties in our political system, that's just how things turn out. We're drifting further and further away from a democracy. I guess since most other countries have some sort of term limit that we probably should too, but I'm not a political science expert by any means, and I wouldn't know what to recommend. I would support us looking that way in the future, but truthfully, until we get rid of our plurality voting system, I don't think it'll bring the kind of change that we need, and the courts will continue to become more and more polarized. So this leads now to our first story of the week, which is on the death and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how our country is currently dealing with her replacement. So let's start out by discussing briefly about who she was and why her death is significant. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was only the second woman to be appointed as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. During the 1970s, Ginsburg worked as a professor and served as the director for the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. While in this position, she argued six landmark cases for gender equality before the Supreme Court. She was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals in 1980 under Jimmy Carter and to the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton in 1993. From Biography.com As a judge, Ginsburg favored caution, moderation, and restraint. She is considered part of the Supreme Court's moderate liberal bloc, presenting a strong voice in favor of gender equality, the rights of workers, and the separation of church and state. In 1996, Ginsburg wrote the Supreme Court's landmark decision in United States v. Virginia, which held that the state-supported Virginia Military Institute could not refuse to admit women. In 1999, she won the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award for her contributions to gender equality and civil rights. Furthermore, Ginsburg garnered attention for her views of the Bush-Gore election of 2000, where she supported the appointment of Gore instead of Bush, and in 2010, she was one of six justices who voted to uphold part of the Affordable Care Act. 
She also voted with the majority in the 5-4 ruling, which legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Ginsburg was also proudly Jewish. In recent years, Ginsburg had struggled with her physical health. Fracturing three ribs in a fall in 2018 required hospitalization due to a gallbladder infection in May of 2020, and in July of 2020 went under chemotherapy for liver cancer. She succumbed to complications due to pancreatic cancer on September 18th of this year. It's also important to note that days before her death, Ginsburg told her granddaughter, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Now we know a little bit about who she was and the legacy that she left behind. So what's happening today? So let's first look at the makeup of the court. Currently in the Supreme Court, there are three democratically appointed justices. One, Justice Breyer, who was nominated under Clinton. Two, Justice Sotomayor, nominated under Obama. And three, Justice Kagan, nominated also under Obama. Ginsburg was the fourth democratically nominated justice nominated under Clinton. There are also five Republican-appointed justices. One, Justice Roberts Jr., who was nominated under George W. Bush. Justice Thomas, who was nominated under Bush Sr. Justice Alito Jr., who was nominated also under W. Bush. Justice Gorsuch, who was nominated under Trump. And Justice Kavanaugh, also nominated under Trump. I briefly want to take this time to point out the only female justices, Sotomayor and Kagan, and then formerly Ginsburg, were all nominated by Democrats, though Trump has vouched that his pick for Ginsburg's replacement would also be a woman. Also, the court currently has two people of color serving, Justice Thomas, who is appointed by Bush Sr., and Justice Sotomayor, appointed by Obama. So before Ginsburg's passing, the court was pretty evenly split, with four Democratic appointees and five Republican appointees. Now it's five Republicans to three Democrats. If Biden gets to appoint the next justice, it would return back to 5-4, and if Trump appoints the next justice, it would swing to 6-3. This is significant because landmark court cases like Roe v. Wade, decisions on climate change, Obamacare, and gay and LGBTQ plus rights could all be overturned for the next three or four decades. Furthermore, justices up until recently were relatively nonpartisan and weren't guaranteed to vote one way or the other. Presidents traditionally recommend a moderate justice, like I discussed in the question of the week, which is how courts have stayed relatively balanced. But Donald Trump will most likely pick an extreme right-wing candidate, which would essentially make all Supreme Court decisions for the next 30 to 40 years extremely right-wing. So that's what the court looks like now. But why are we discussing RBG's replacement with such fervor? Well, the tricky part about her replacement is that we are very close to an election, 37 days to be exact. Normally, a Supreme Court justice is nominated under the sitting president, and then the Senate has the right to confirm that appointment. From the Congressional Research Service via National Geographic, the overall length of the Supreme Court confirmation process has increased significantly over the course of more than 200 years. Once completed within about a week, in recent decades, the process has stretched to two to three months. 
the confirmation process for Obama nominees Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan lasted 66 and 87 days, respectively, while Trump nominees Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh lasted 65 and 90 days. So this begs the question, if Donald Trump loses the election, will the Senate even have time to complete a nomination before the next president takes over? Or is it even morally right for a president this close to an election to choose a Supreme Court nominee in the first place? As we all know, this exact same predicament happened in 2016, when Obama wanted to nominate Merrick Garland nine months before the upcoming election and 11 months before his predecessor would take over. Senate Republicans argued in favor of the Biden rule, which is an unofficial rule that is based on the fact that Joe Biden, in 1992, called for George H.W. Bush to not proceed with a Supreme Court nomination until after the election campaign was over, even though there wasn't technically any openings in the court. Republicans have used this concept as proof that Obama should wait to nominate a new member of the judiciary. Though this concept has been discussed a few times in recent history, no president since at least 1900 has failed to nominate and or the Senate has failed to confirm a nominee during a presidential election year, except for the first time in 2016. And we can't talk about what's happening this year without talking about what happened in 2016 because Senate Republicans are directly conflicting themselves with their stances on the matter. I recently saw a really interesting compilation video from the New York Times, which compared what Senate Republicans said four years ago compared to today. I'll play it for you, but since there's a lot of text in the video, I'll just say what the text says. So the video starts, Here's how three prominent Republicans explained their reversals on election year Supreme Court nominations. Lindsey Graham on March 10th, 2016, I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Then October 3rd, 2018. If an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term, and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. And at this point, the video shows a tweet from Graham, dated September 19th of 2020, saying, In light of these two events, I will support President Donald Trump in any effort to move forward regarding the recent vacancy created by the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Ted Cruz on February 14th, 2016, said, there is a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. The Senate is advising right now, we are advising that a lame duck president in an election year is not going to be able to tip the balance of the Supreme Court. Compared to Ted Cruz on September 20th of 2020. I think it is particularly important that the Senate take it up and, and confirm this, this nomination before the election. Because Joe Biden has, has been explicit. He has said if he doesn't win, he's going to challenge this election. He's going to go to court. He's going to challenge it. He's already hired a big legal team. Hillary Clinton has told Joe Biden under no circumstances should you concede. Given that, there is a serious risk of a constitutional crisis. And lastly, Mitch McConnell on February 23rd of 2016. It's campaign season. We're right in the middle of it. And one of the most important issues now is this. 
Who will Americans trust to nominate the next Supreme Court justice? As senators, it leaves us with a choice. Will we allow the people to continue deciding who will nominate the next justice? Or will we empower a lame duck president to make that decision on his way out the door? Compared to what he said on September 21st of 2020. President Trump's nominee for this vacancy will receive a vote on the floor of the Senate. The Senate has more than sufficient time to process a nomination. History and precedent make that perfectly clear. And for the record, I don't know what Ted Cruz is talking about with Biden not accepting the election results. I think he meant Donald Trump. Also, some like Ted Cruz argue that Democrats are being the hypocritical ones, since they're now wanting the next president to pick RBG's replacement, which is in contrast to what they said four years ago. And I'm just going to interject a quick opinion here. I don't think that Democrats agree that a new justice should be picked by the new president, but rather just want Republicans to hold up what they said last election cycle. Maybe this wouldn't be an issue if we weren't a bipartisan country and had more views represented in the Senate. It would also eliminate this power grab on both sides and would stop the us-versus-them mentality. Furthermore, because the Senate is essentially split in half between Republicans and Democrats, anything that passes is just whichever party has more people, which is pretty messed up if you ask me. So, what are the Democrats to do? This is a tricky topic, and I'm not sure anybody really knows the right answer. There's been a lot of discussion that if Republicans get their Supreme Court nominee pick, that Democrats will then increase the number of senators from 9 to 11, thus evening out the court by appointing more Democratic justices. If they did this, it would be six Republican-appointed justices to five Democratically-appointed justices. I don't know personally how I feel about this move. On one hand, it does seem shifty on the Democratic side of things, though the number of Supreme Court justices is not set by our Constitution and has been changed before. Furthermore, I feel like there's nothing to stop Republicans if they gain power at a later time to add even more justices back to the court to swing things back in their favor. Last night, I was doing some more research on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was listening to a few different podcasts, one of which was Pod Save America. Now, I will say up front that this is a liberal-leaning podcast and that this was my first time listening to them, but they had on a guest named Kate Kendall, who works for the organization Take Back the Courts, which promotes increasing the number of Supreme Court justices to 11. I don't necessarily agree with everything that she said, but she did bring up a few interesting points that I hadn't thought about before that I think are at least worth discussing. To start, one of the hosts asks her the same question I did earlier. What's to stop Republicans from just adding more justices when they get in power? To which she basically said that they wouldn't ever be in power again because they've stolen all of their elections. So if we prevent them from stealing elections by balancing the courts, they wouldn't win anything. Again, I don't I don't really agree with this statement, but it brought up an interesting point that I've never thought of before, which was that the last Republican president to win a majority vote was George Bush Sr., who only served one term from 1989 until 1993. Every other Republican since that time, George W. Bush, 
and Donald Trump have only won through the electoral college, not popular vote. I don't really have a goal here with this point, but I feel like it's important to say. Hey, this is Hannah from the future here. I forgot that George W. Bush had two terms. He did not win only through the electoral college on his second term. He did also win the popular vote. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Another thing that Kendall brought up on the podcast was the idea that Republicans cheated their way to get these judicial seats. The only way to keep them from ruining America would be to balance the courts again to make it fair. She explained that Democrats do nothing at this time. It would be like bringing cotton candy to a knife fight and that Republicans are playing by a different set of rules entirely. To this point, I believe that this argument is just playing into the us-versus-them mentality, which I personally think we should get rid of entirely, but it does bring up an interesting conundrum. What should Democrats do when Republicans don't play fair? I think it's clear that Republicans stole Obama's Supreme Court nomination in 2016. No one should argue that. So what do we do now? Do we stoop to their level and play dirty too? Or do we try and take the moral high road and continue to get clobbered? I don't know the answer, but it's been something that's been weighing very heavily on my mind lately. And the last thing that they talked about that I want to mention is that if Democrats do decide to play dirty and increase the number of justices from 9 to 11, it would still provide a communal good if you like agree that democratic principles are good. By having the courts balanced between Republicans and Democrats, it would promote democracy. And like I mentioned earlier, some extremely important things are trying to be shut down by these extremist Republicans. Should we do something bad in order to save the planet, save the health care of 22 million Americans, to protect women's rights, to protect gay and trans rights? Would two wrongs equal a right? Again, I don't know, but I wanted to discuss it anyways. And now on to uh, some more opinionated opinions. (laughs) First of all, I do think that a justice, as of right now, should be nominated by the sitting president. But because of that, I also believe that Obama's pick should have been considered and nominated instead of Trump's. Since Republicans stole the replacement of Justice Scalia, it would only be fair that Democrats get the next nomination. But to play devil's advocate, I think that's walking a dangerous line. We don't nominate justices on a turn-by-turn basis. But also, we shouldn't nominate justices solely based on what party is the Senate majority either. Truthfully, I think this whole system was just butchered four years ago and may not be fixable. I think that it would be wrong for Democrats to want Biden to pick the nominee if we're going off of old rules. But Republicans broke those rules four years ago and got their pick anyways. We either need to make it a hard and fast rule that presidents cannot make Supreme Court nominations on an election year, or make a rule that says it doesn't matter, because these games that the Senate is playing are really, frankly, messed up. Furthermore, why are Republican senators so quick to act and speak out about one Supreme Court justice replacement, but have stayed silent while millions of Americans have been suffering from coronavirus. We have only received one stimulus check all the way back in April, and we continue to be the world leader in cases, now skyrocketing above 7 million positive and over 200,000 deaths nationally. 
the Republican-controlled Senate, who could pass anything they wanted to right now, have yet to help out the American people at all, and it's clear where their priorities lie. Their actions show that they care more about power than they do people. So, in summary, I don't know what the right answer would be other than to just completely reframe the way that we elect senators, presidents, and therefore the appointment of Supreme Court justices. I was kind of hoping for this overhaul with Bernie, but we clearly aren't getting that anymore. Maybe it'll come in time with more of our generation becoming politicians. People like AOC, who believe that politicians should serve the people and not the other way around. I just hope that we can get out of this current political cesspool sometime soon. Now, this next subject is going to be a bit short because there's not a whole lot to talk about, but I do think it's worth mentioning. So, the other day, a reporter asked Donald Trump a pointed question about what would happen if he loses. Let's just take a listen. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? There has been rioting in Louisville, there's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer? of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. Mr. President, the second question is, will you... Please, go ahead. Why won't go ahead. You, you asked the question. Why won't so basically, Trump just admitted what he's been alluding to for the past few months, that he will not peacefully accept the results of the election if he loses. This reminds me of the tweet that he made on September 30th of last year, where he quoted Pastor Robert Jeffress, saying, quote, If the Democrats are successful in removing the president from office, which they never will be, it will cause a civil war-like fracture in the nation from which our country will never heal. Personally, I think it was alarming then, and everyone just said, Oh, of course Donald Trump will concede if he loses. He was just quoting somebody dumb. Well, look who's talking now. Literally. Look who's talking. It's Donald Trump. And he's talking and he's saying, well, we'll have to see what happens and get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very peaceful, there won't be a transfer. Frankly, there will be a continuation. But luckily, Mitch McConnell tweeted, the winner of the November 3rd election will be inaugurated on January 20th. There will be an orderly transition, just as there has been every four years since 1792. Lindsey Graham also told Fox News, I can assure you that it will be peaceful. If Republicans lose, we will accept the results. If a Supreme Court rules in favor of Joe Biden, I will accept that result. But like we discussed in our last subject, I think we can all 100% trust these two men and what they say. Also, Trump has recently been joking about he how he will extend his office to a third and fourth term multiple times now. If him answering this question isn't proof that this isn't a joke to him, I don't know what is. He literally said, get rid of the ballots, there won't be a transfer of power. Please, 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 I urge everyone who is listening to register to vote and to vote him out. 
and also to do some research on dictators of the past and what their rise of power looked like. Don't forget, Hitler was elected. Now, I'm not saying Trump is Hitler, but he's getting dangerously close to being a dictator. History repeats itself. Trends repeat themselves. Don't be fooled by Fox News or a random Facebook post. What he said in this press conference should be alarming to everyone. Even if it's just a joke, he's the president of one of the largest nations on Earth. No one who is president of the United States should ever talk about getting rid of the ballots and staying in office when people don't want them there. I mean, what else are you looking for for a dictator? Seriously, what else? And on to our next subject, the... Florida felon voting laws, and Mike Bloomberg donating money to ex-felons. So first of all, let's give a little context. In 2018, Florida voters approved a measure which restored the voting rights of ex-felons who had served their time, only contingent on the fact that their crimes were not murder or sexual abuse. Period. That was it. The people chose what they wanted. But then in 2019, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law which restricted the voting rights of ex-felons, saying that they had to pay back all fines and court fees before they can vote. This didn't seem right to many, so the argument was brought to a district court in Tallahassee, where DeSantis' law restricting these voters' rights was deemed unconstitutional. The judge Robert L. Hinkle wrote, A Florida law requiring people with serious criminal convictions to pay court fines and fees before they can register to vote is unconstitutional and that such a requirement would amount to a poll tax and discriminate against felons who cannot afford to pay. He also called it a pay-to-vote system. So, cool. All's back to the way it should be, right? Wrong. And yet another twist of events, in September of this year, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta ruled that DeSantis' law was constitutional, reversing the previous ruling. And this is still where we stand today. So, what is Mike Bloomberg doing that is getting some people so riled up? Well, he raised $16 million for a fund to help pay off these legal fees of ex-felons in order to add some Democratic votes to the ballot. Though it's important to note he's not telling anyone how to vote, just helping them restore their voters' rights and giving them the right to choose, and then he's hoping that they'll vote in favor of Biden. Matt Gates, a Florida Republican congressman who avidly supports Donald Trump, was royally irritated by this, claiming that Bloomberg is breaking the law. He told Fox News, I'm the former criminal justice chairman of the Florida House of Representatives. I know this area of law well. I spoke to the Florida Attorney General last night, and a criminal probe may already be underway in Florida. Chapter 104 Florida Statutes says that it is a felony for someone to either directly or indirectly 
offer something of value to impact whether or not someone votes. So in this case, you have the question of whether or not paying someone's restitution and court costs constitutes something of value. And of course, this is a financial show. We know when you extinguish a liability, when you improve your balance sheet, when you improve your net worth, that is, of course, something of value. Then the next step is to determine whether or not this is intended to impact whether or not someone votes. We have a confession document, the memo that the Bloomberg team used to go and get other people to contribute to this effort literally says, we are doing this to impact whether or not these people vote. And it's not for any felon. It's not for any circumstance. They're specifically targeting African-Americans because they believe in Florida, African-Americans will vote 90 to 95 percent for Joe Biden. So this isn't an exercise in democracy. This is cherry picking votes, offering something of value for them. And I believe the Florida attorney general has jurisdiction and is currently evaluating options for a criminal investigation. One final point, we also have a RICO statute in Florida so that this web of Bloomberg associated entities could all be brought under the same criminal prosecution. Though Gates claims these donations are illegal, in an interview with NPR, Julie Epstein, an attorney with the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, says that in court, part of the state's defense was that if felons don't have the funds, others could always pay for them. She says, I'm surprised to hear now that third parties who are generously willing to pay for people's outstanding legal financial obligations, suddenly they're being accused of a crime for doing exactly what the state suggested was perfectly legitimate. Another counterargument was brought up in the same article by Daniel Smith, a political science professor at the University of Florida. He says that there's little evidence that helping felons register helps Democrats more than Republicans. Although African-Americans who tend to vote Democratic are disproportionately represented in the group, the majority of felons with unpaid legal financial obligations in Florida are white. So now for a little bit of opinion time. I had to do some digging, but the law that Matt Gates, I think, is referring to would be Title IX, Chapter 104.045, which states, Any person who corruptly offers to vote for or against, or to refrain from voting for or against, any candidate in an election in return for pecuniary or other benefit, or accepts a pecuniary or other benefit in exchange for a promise to vote for or against or refrain from voting for or against any candidate in an election is guilty of a felony in the third degree. So I don't know about you, but that doesn't really seem to be what's happening here. Bloomberg is obviously for Biden, but he's not asking these ex-felons to vote for Biden in exchange for his money, which to me is what that law is saying. With Matt Gates's argument, any employer who pays an ex-felon and then the ex-felon uses that money to pay off their dues, that employer would be breaking this law. I also think it's funny how he claims that Democrats restoring people's right to vote is cheating, but that Donald Trump trying to limit mail-in voting and encouraging his supporters to participate in voter intimidation is not. Are Republicans really that scared of more people voting? Furthermore, it's infuriating that we, the people, voted to restore rights of felons without all these contingencies, and then our government oversteps us and finds another way to make it illegal for felons to vote. What was the point of our vote then? 
This just goes to show once again that some politicians care more about their party staying in power and in turn giving them power and money than they do about their own citizens. The last story I want to cover this week is also pretty short, but it's an important update in the fight for Breonna Taylor from the New York Times. A grand jury indicted a former Louisville police officer on Wednesday for wanton endangerment for his actions during the raid. No charges were announced against the other two officers who fired shots, and no one was charged for causing Ms. Taylor's death. Brett Hankinson, a detective at the time, fired into the sliding glass patio door and window of Ms. Taylor's apartment, both of which were covered with blinds, which was a violation of the department policy that requires officers to have a line of sight. He is the only one of three officers who was dismissed from the force with a termination letter stating that he showed an extreme indifference to the value of human life. So just to clarify, only one of three officers even had charges brought against them, and that charge has nothing to do with the murder of Brianna, but rather the walls and windows of her apartment and her neighbors. In case you haven't noticed, black lives don't matter to our government, which is why people are still protesting. We've been protesting for four months straight about the lack of concern for black lives and nothing has changed. Black lives matter. Brianna Taylor's life mattered. Not to be argumentative, but if you can't see what's wrong in this case, you're part of the problem. And I would urge you to do some research because it's getting ridiculous. I'll leave off with a Facebook post from my friend AJ. He put it better than I could. Brianna Taylor, I am so sorry. I have no words. I am in this moment literally speechless. The system didn't fail Brianna Taylor. It worked just as it was designed to. You're seriously kidding yourself if you truly and earnestly believe that our justice system is not corrupt. Brianna, my love, our fight for you does not end here. Black Lives Matter. If you want a more in-depth look into Brianna's death, you can view images on my Facebook page. I did a lot of research before starting this podcast on the night of her death. I'll also share the graphic on the Facebook page for this podcast as well. And that was this week in review. As always, you can find all of the sources for this episode in the description below. If you have any future episode suggestions, ideas for question of the week, or just want to stay updated, you can follow me at facebook.com slash letsbebetterpod or on Instagram at letsbebetterpod or you can email me at letsbebetterpod at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars. It really helps me out and helps other people see the podcast. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week.